0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.
2: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 316 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast.
2: After the great and terrible battle was over, Lieutenant Frank Haskell, a federal officer serving in the Second Corps at Gettysburg and an eyewitness to Pickett's charge, said, quote, Many things cannot be described by pen or pencil. Such a fight is one.
0: As we've drawn closer and closer to the start of the Battle of Gettysburg here on the podcast, we've found our thoughts returning again and again to Haskell's words. He stressed that, quote, he who never saw can have no adequate idea of what such a battle is.
2: No one, Haskell declared, would ever be able to write a complete history of the Battle of Gettysburg. Quote, A full account of the battle, as it was, will never, can never be made. Who could sketch the changes, the constant shifting of the bloody panorama? It is not possible.
0: Haskell pointed out that even the eyewitnesses, those like himself who had survived the tempest of death and destruction, would have a difficult time making sense of what they'd experienced during the battle. It was, he argued, impossible for the participants to see beyond the tiny portion of the battlefield they had personally occupied. As a result, no matter how hard anyone tried, Gettysburg could never be fully captured in words.
2: Well, one can point out that Haskell's own words obviously didn't fail him when it came to his own attempt to describe the battle and what it was all about. And although it's no doubt true that we will never be able to authentically replicate the experience of those who were actually there during those three terrible days, that hasn't stopped people, over the last 155 years or so, from writing more books about Gettysburg than any other battle in the Civil War.
0: The job of the historian is very simply to tell the story of the past. This is an incredibly important task because, as one of America's most popular recent historians, David McCullough, has pointed out quote, History is who we are and why we are the way we are.
2: Really, the historian's job is just that to tell the story of the past. That is, to frame the way we recall past events by balancing the objectivity of history that is, the search for truth, with the subjectivity of memory, that is, the perceptions of what happened and why it happened. One of the reasons we're sharing all of this is to let you know that as we approach the start of the fighting at Gettysburg, this massive three-day clash, we're very aware of Frank Haskell's belief that what really happened at the battle can never be captured in words. But that's not going to stop us, here on the podcast, from throwing our hat in the ring and joining all those others who have used words to try and tell the story of the battle.
0: The other reason we're bringing all of this up is that, as we like to do with every battle that we cover, we'll be using a lot of first-person accounts as we work our way through Gettysburg. And this is where the subjectivity of memory comes into play. Because while few people, whether in letters, diaries, or regimental histories, wrote down their impressions of what had happened with willful intent to lie or deceive, there are nevertheless inaccuracies in many of these first-person accounts.
2: And part of this is simply human failing. After all, no one's memory is perfect. However, we believe it's still well worth sharing these first-person accounts since they do give us incredible insights into what was happening from that person's perspective. The sights, sounds, smells, emotions experienced by someone who was there as history was unfolding. Of course, in those moments, most of them weren't thinking of it in those terms. Hey, history is unfolding right before my eyes. Instead, they were thinking about loading and firing as fast as they could, or hearing the dull thud of the bullet that just hit the man next to them, or praying that God would let them live through this awful thing that was happening.
0: dawn broke shortly after four thirty a.m on wednesday morning july 1st 1863 and about half an hour later heath's division was on the march for gettysburg a light misty rain had fallen during the night however the sun rose to partly cloudy skies and the promise of a bright but humid day in those peaceful morning hours before the muggy heat settled down on the pennsylvania countryside The marching Confederate soldiers would have enjoyed the fresh, mild breezes and the damp morning smells of field and forest.
2: Strange to say, but A.P. Hill never explained, and no one since has ever been able to really figure out, just why there were so many Confederate soldiers marching from Cashtown toward Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st. As we said in the last show, Hill, the night before, had decided to put two-thirds of his corps on the road to Gettysburg that morning. That was two full divisions, about 13,500 infantry, supported by two battalions of artillery, so about 15,000 men in all.
0: Hill later said that since there was no Confederate cavalry on hand to do reconnaissance work, he sent those two divisions toward Gettysburg to, quote, "...discover what was in my front."
2: If that's true, and there's no reason to conclude it wasn't, then you can only say that while A.P. Hill's intention was sound, his judgment was not. That is to say, after Pettigrew's report the previous evening, Hill would have been remiss in his duty had he not tried to learn the composition and disposition of whatever enemy force might be at Gettysburg. And since Hill didn't have cavalry to conduct reconnaissance, he had to use infantrymen. But, but his choice to use such a large force, two infantry divisions and two artillery battalions, on a scout toward Gettysburg was a poor decision.
0: As Stephen Sears points out in his book on Gettysburg, the number of men that Hill sent out on July 1st, quote, was too large a force for a reconnaissance mission and too large a force to back away from any Yankee challenge.
2: Such a large force, if it ran into serious opposition at Gettysburg, might very well commit Robert E. Lee's army to battle at a spot that Lee had not seen and before the Army of Northern Virginia was assembled. Really, unless A.P. Hill was expecting to get into a major fight on July 1st, it's difficult to understand why he sent such a large force toward Gettysburg. There was simply no need to send two-thirds of his corps on a scout.
0: Hill knew that Lee had issued orders that would bring the rebel army together at Cashtown, and he also knew that Lee didn't want to confront any portion of the Federal Army before his own army was concentrated. By the night of July 1st, eight of the Confederate Army's nine divisions would have been assembled at Cashtown, and Lee would have been ready to engage the Army of the Potomac.
2: Ultimately, A.P. Hill's decision to advance toward Gettysburg with Heath's and Pender's divisions led to the unraveling of Robert E. Lee's plans— The Army of Northern Virginia would never be assembled at Cashtown, as Lee had intended.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
0: A.P. Hill's decision to march two-thirds of his corps toward Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st might not have led to the unraveling of Robert E. Lee's plans if Hill had actually accompanied the advance of Heath's and Pender's divisions, and therefore been on hand to make any decisions that unforeseen circumstances might require.
2: However, describing himself as quote-unquote very unwell, A.P. Hill would not accompany the advance and would instead stay behind in his camp at Cashtown. This left the expedition to Gettysburg in the hands of Harry Heath, the least experienced division commander in the 3rd Corps.
0: In any Gettysburg discussion of 37-year-old Major General Henry Heath, it seems obligatory to mention that he had the distinction of being the only officer in the Army of Northern Virginia that Robert E. Lee called by his first name, Harry.
2: Now, even though this interesting bit of trivia is nearly always mentioned, we've never really heard anyone explain why it was so. Although you can see that Lee, for whatever reason, took a special interest in Heath's Civil War career, it doesn't seem like the two men actually enjoyed a special friendship, so it's all a bit puzzling, unless we're missing something. But at any rate, now we've made the obligatory mention that Lee called Harry Heath by his first name. So there you go.
0: Handsome and charming, the West Point-trained Heath shared the same aristocratic Virginia roots as did Lee. Unlike Lee, however, Heath finished dead last in his West Point class, the class of 1847, thus earning the distinction of being one of the immortals, as those who finished last in each class were called.
2: With the outbreak of the Civil War, Heath was the first colonel of the 45th Virginia Infantry and made his way up the ranks to division command. That happened when Heath's friend A.P. Hill was plucked from his 6th Brigade Light Division and promoted to lead the newly created 3rd Corps after Chancellorsville. Robert E. Lee faced a difficult choice for Hill's replacement. Although he quite rightly selected Dorsey Pender for that position, Lee also believed Heath deserved a division as well. So Lee took two brigades from Hill's former division, John Brockenbra's Virginians, and James Archer's Tennesseans and Alabamans, and added them to a pair of brigades new to the Army of Northern Virginia, Johnston Pettigrew's North Carolinians, and Joe Davis's Mississippians and North Carolinians, to form a new four brigade division for Harry Heath. As a result, July 1st, 1863, was the first time Heath led a division in combat.
0: Years after the end of the war, Heath would claim, quote, The Battle of Gettysburg was by the result purely of an accident, for which I am probably more than anyone else accountable.
2: Well, okay, that's one way to spin it, I guess. But as we'll see, Heath made a couple of critical errors on July 1st, and so the escalation in fighting that occurred that morning was no accident, but was largely the result of Heath's poor judgment.
0: At the head of his column advancing down the Chambersburg Pike toward Gettysburg, Heath put Archer's brigade along with Pegram's artillery battalion. Behind Archer were the brigades of Davis, Pettigrew, and Brockenbraugh. Then, following Heath in support, was Dorsey Pender's division.
2: The Confederates advanced without skirmishers out in front of the column until they reached Marsh Creek. This wasn't actually as boneheaded as it sounds, even in the absence of rebel cavalry to lead the way, since the advancing column was behind its own picket line for much of the way. At any rate, Brigadier General James Archer's lead regiment was the 13th Alabama commanded by Colonel Burkett Fry, and about 7.30 a.m., as Fry and his men neared the Marsh Creek Bridge, a single shot rang out.
0: This was the famous first shot fired that morning by Lieutenant Marcellus Jones of the 8th Illinois Cavalry. The Battle of Gettysburg was now officially underway. The ball, as they say, had opened.
2: Jones' shot, and the others that probably followed, triggered alarm in the Confederate ranks, and warned Archer and his men that the Yankees were just ahead. Those Yankees, the Illinois cavalrymen on Knoxland Ridge, saw the rebels halt, and then watched as enemy skirmishers shook themselves loose from the Confederate march column and deployed north and south of the road, over on the far side of the creek. These were men from the 5th Alabama Battalion, from several companies of the 13th Alabama, and probably some sharpshooters from the 1st Tennessee.
0: While on the march, a unit's colors, or flag, was typically cased. That is, the silk flag portion was rolled up and put in a protective tube and carried in that way. But when action was looming, the colors would be uncased or unfurled so that all might see them. Now, Colonel Fry ordered the 13th Alabama's color bearer to uncase the regiment's battle flag, thereby announcing to one and all that they were about to fight.
2: At about this same time, Major Willie Pegram, the artillery battalion commander, unlimbered one of his guns in the middle of the road. It was a three-inch ordnance rifle from Captain, Captain Edward Marie's battery, Fredericksburg Artillery. Tradition holds that Marie's gun dropped trail directly in front of the Samuel Lohr farm, about a quarter mile west of Marsh Creek.
0: Samuel Lohr's house and large barn sat just on the south side of the pike. As the Confederate artillerymen readied their three-inch rifle to fire, Lohr rushed from the house and yelled, My God, you are not going to fire here, are you?
2: Getting no response and seeing that they were, indeed, going to fire right there, Lohr threw up his hands and ran back into his house.
0: By this time, the Confederate skirmishers down by the creek and the Federal cavalrymen over on Knoxland Ridge were popping away at each other in a fitful exchange of small-arms fire. Suddenly, the loud boom of the Rebel three-inch rifle shattered the stillness of the early morning once and for all.
2: After Marie's gun fired several shots over across the way, and there was no reply from any Yankee artillery, Pegram ordered the rifle limbered up, while the rebel skirmishers down in the low, swampy ground along the creek started to work their way forward toward the enemy.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Gettysburg, July 1st, by David G. Martin.
2: As always, you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
0: We realize this is a bit of a shorter episode, but probably like many of you, we felt this past week a lot like the world has kind of been turned upside down, and with all of that going on, plus still working at our day jobs, we just didn't have as much time to work on the podcast as we would have liked.
2: Tracy and I are well, and both still working, Tracy mostly from home, thank goodness, while I'm still heading into Boulder each day. We hope all of you are all right, though as we say that, we know that everyone across the country and across the world is being impacted in one way or another by what's happening.
0: It may sound silly to say that all of you are in our thoughts, but it's true. We appreciate all of you who listen to the podcast and want only the best for you, especially in these days filled with anxiety and turmoil.
2: As we wrap up this show, we want to give a special shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, who, even in the midst of all that's going on, have still stepped up to support the podcast. They are Spencer, Jim, Chris, Travis and Kirsten, and Andrea.
0: And also thanks to Graham M. for his donation.
2: Your support means the world to us, so thank you.
0: And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll tune in again next time, but until then, take care.
2: Yes, please take care, everyone. Bye for now.